land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a podcast by The Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of The Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. This is our weekly two cents segment. We're on a mission to become Australia's most trusted property podcast. And in our two cents segment, we take a plain English look at the big three property news stories of the week. I'm joined by Chris Bates. Chris, welcome. How's your week been? Been well, Pete. Um, unlucky on the ashes again there, mate. 2-0. Um, <laughs> I didn't was... say long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, I'm going to put it in there. I'm an Aussie today. If we lost, I probably would have just thrown my UK passport. Um, now, things have been good here. Just uh, went up to Newcastle where I grew up um, on the weekend to get a bit of help with the family and uh, see some friends, which was good. Um, what have you been up to yourself? Uh, well, our team's been busy this week uh, buying a family home for um, a couple buying in uh, Brisbane. So a nice uh, home purchase on a double block. It was due to go to auction and uh, with some skillful buyer's agency work, got it bought prior to auction. So everyone's very pleased with that. Um, and uh, otherwise, yes, trying to disregard all the news stories on the cricket and who may or may not have been playing outside the spirits of the game. So uh, the next test match is straight away uh, kicking off um, in the next day or two. So uh, there's no respite. So uh, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, and there's so many stories we could talk about today. You um, kindly sent through about eight different stories and we picked (laughs) three out of them. Um, So there's lots to cover. What are we doing this week, Pete? Yeah, so look, there's always more than we could ever cover. Every Sunday morning at 7am, you'll get your Two Cents podcast episode in your favourite podcast player. So this week, uh, three news stories. One we picked up from the Fin Review. Uh, tree changes returning to the cities, at least for some of the week. Um, so that's our first story. Secondly, uh, first home buyer assistance in Sydney and New South Wales. So from 1 July, big rule change. 
under the new New South Wales Labor government. So we'll talk about what the changes are and what that actually means for buyers and what it means for the market. And thirdly, um, an exodus of real estate agents from the market. So during the boom period, um, it's a pretty cyclical industry. A lot of people got into real estate, bought the sharp suits and uh, uh, flash high cars. We're now leaving the industry again as uh, things cool off and uh, sales volumes drop back towards average and below. So those are our three stories. So we'll take a look at what's happening and why and what it means for the market. So Chris, let's start with the tree changes article. So mm. this was an article. Um, it was one of the little profile pieces in the AFR. Um, Kate Bacos was the buyer's agent, good friend of ours and friend of the show. Um, so uh, basically there was a an inner city unit, three-bedroom apartments, I think, just looking at it. Um, and uh, I think the interesting thing, uh, just running through the story, is that Kate's saying there, that over the past decade, she hasn't really done much in that inner city unit market. But in the past 24 months, she's done uh, more than the whole of the, uh, the preceding decade combined. So, and in this particular case, the buyer is still working and living remotely in a tree change region, but wanted to have a, an inner city presence um, because I guess um, a lot of employers are now requiring that people are in the office maybe two days a week or three days a week. And a bit of a hybrid model emerging there, potentially. Yeah, I think this is a story we keep tracking, um, you know, the whole work from home, remote work, hybrid work. What do employers do? What do employee, our unions do is a is an interesting change I've seen recently. There's a, um, you know, a fight for people going through their unions to fight back with CBA. That was the story I read. So um, I do think this whole tree change, um, you know, is, is only going to be really what's really going to drive the market isn't sort of the downsize of market moving there. That's always, you know, potentially move to these locations. It's really when the younger demographic, um, people working and taking their city incomes down to these regional locations and basically out competing local buyers and competing on a small number of properties. And ultimately, because there's true scarcity in these locations, I mean, they can always build house and land packages, but in the real pockets around the couple of beaches, there's only a number of houses. And so for growth to continue, though, you still need those Sydney families, you know, or Melbourne or Brisbane families, for example, um, escaping the city but keeping their their city jobs. And there's we're seeing a real retreat. Um, very few clients are, are to making these big lifestyle moves, um, you know, whether it's either going um, in Sydney, for example, going to the Central Coast or north of Wollongong, um, that's not coming up that often right now, let alone when people go the next distance, right, like to the Newcastles or the the Kiamas or the, you know, even further south than that. We're also seeing not that many clients looking at the big interstate move as well. Um, in 2015, 16, 17, we saw a lot of clients go north, um, you know, uh, from Sydney to Brisbane. We also saw that in 2020, 2021, um, even 2022. But I think it's sort of slowed down a little bit um, over the last six to 12 months. So I think the interesting story is if you are a downsizer sort of, you know, maybe in your 50s, um, you know, you've got your kids have grown up and you make this tree change. Um, I think you can do that city pad, you know. Um you know, we've got clients in this situation who've, um, you know, a good friend of mine actually, you know, he's got a house up on the beaches where I am and he's got a city pad um, in Alexandria. Um, he goes to Alexandria during the week to work um, and then on the weekends he's up on the beaches. Um, he's a bit older. He's in his 50s, for example, all the kids have grown up. So I think that really works. I just, 
I'm not sure if it really what families want to sign up for, you know, one moving to this regional location. And then if one of the parties has to be away for two, three nights a week into a city pad um, and leaving the kids and the pressure on the other partner. And I just don't know if that's going to float if it's three or four days in the office um, for most families. I think it really needs to be almost a fortnightly or a once a week visit where you're up and back, um, not a, you know, a true hybrid model where you're leaving your family every week. I think it's a stage of life thing, isn't it? Chris? Yeah. I remember growing up, my uh, dad uh, he was in a career where he was constantly moving locations and he used to work away for weeks on end, months on end. It, it absolutely sucked for him and for us. And mm. uh, I think, yes, I mean, if you're a, a single 20-something, then, um, you know, crashing in the city a couple of nights a week is great. And likewise, if the kids have flown the nest, then you might choose to do that. Um, I think for a lot of families, though, um, it looks better on paper than in, it actually is in practice to be away two or three nights. I do think the downsizing trend will continue over time. I think mm. um, if nothing else, state governments and federal governments will actually put incentives in place to try and encourage people to downsize because it will make a more efficient use of the housing stock. Um, but yes, it's a, this is just an ongoing tug of war, isn't it, between employers and employees. Uh, notice one of the major banks, the employees, are not happy at all about being demanded to go back into the office. And um, at the moment, anyway, the employees still have the upper hand because we've got very low unemployment. But that could well change in the next year or two. So fascinating uh, thing that's sort of uh, just unfolding, I guess. And we'll see whether people can sustain the hybrid model. I see SQM Research reported uh, their asking prices for the past month, regional asking prices just down a couple of percent over the past month, Sunshine Coast, Mornington Peninsula. So clearly some of those lifestyle regions where prices went ballistic during the pandemic, that's now reversing. I mean, we've actually been seeing that for quite a while. It's just only now starting to show up in the figures, I guess. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of um, you know people who have moved to the regions pre-boom have have finally seen a lot of growth, and maybe they haven't got as much in the super as they think they you know they need. Um, and you know there's been a bit of a temptation for the people who did downsize to these regions to then downsize again, um, especially if they don't need to be in these you know tier one regions that are commutable and take the take advantage of the young families move in. I think that that's what's, you know, you get a little bit of that listings problem there, I think, in these regions versus in the capital cities where people aren't selling, for example, because they've got a, somewhere to live for the next 15, 20 years to get kids through schooling. And so I think that's one of the challenges in the regions right now is if, if, if sellers feel like they can get a still a decent price, there's a temptation to get out because that money means a lot to them to downsize. The whole downsizing thing, we don't do too many in clients in their sort of 50s, 60s, you know, our you know, given what we do, we have a lot of first home buyers, upgraders, people doing renos, you know, investors, et cetera, in their 30s, 40s. But, you know, I did a lot of work in this space in my first five, six years of advice um, in that pre-retiree. And a lot of that sort of um, cohort are very unsure around where they're going to live long term. You know, very few of them ever, when I ask those questions, have those because they always like, well, I'm not sure what's going to happen with the kids. I don't know where they're going to live. And we're just going to stay here for five years and we'll decide when we retire. And it was very hard to lock in a, a future plan with them. And I think a lot of it comes to the, you know, where the children end up. And if you've got multiple children, do they spread out around, around the world or do they all stay in, you know, the capital city? And, um, you know, when they're potentially having grandkids, they don't want to be too far away. So the downsizer, they do want to move a little bit out of the city into a bit more of the country life, but then they don't want to move too far where they can't come and see the grandkids. Um, and so 
it's a really interesting demographic to sort of watch and um, and how this plays out because it, it's A, for the capital cities, if we go back to that real in the office a lot more than people expect, then you're going to get this pressure cooker build on inner ring properties where there's scarcity and people really pro, uh, prioritise their commute and time savings. Um, or do we go back to a real flexible model like we had in COVID where it's, you know, one or two days in the city? That tug of war's got a, a long way to go, I think, Pete. Um, and so let's see how this plays out. Yeah, the only thing I've uh, really just observed is just in the evenings, the, the CBDs in the cities are packed, especially in Melbourne and Sydney, just um, probably as busy as I've ever seen them. But during the day, particularly on some days of the week, like Friday, just much quieter in the office. Um, and actually some um, industry funds have had to write down the value of their office space over uh, recent months, something that's been threatened for quite a long time. So uh, as usual, we'll keep tracking what's happening in that area. So uh, second story of the week, uh, Chris, then uh, first home buyer assistance in New South Wales. So firstly, what's happening? Uh, so the New South Wales uh, Labor government is making a switch. So the previous government um, went down this route of allowing for first home buyers to opt out of stamp duty in favour of an annual land tax. Well, we've kind of gone back to a more traditional exemption approach. So basically, uh, first home buyers um, from 1 July 2023, um, an exemption from stamp duty up to $800,000 purchase price and a concessional rate of stamp duty up to a million dollars. There's also um, exemptions and concessional rates on vacant land at 350k and 450k respectively is the word I was uh, grappling for. Uh, so, yeah, I, I can't really wrap my head around why the, why we've gone down this route. Everyone was pushing for a land tax as kind of the progressive approach. Almost all economists were agreeing that was the way we needed to move. And then we got a change of government. We've gone straight back to uh, first home buyer assistance and stamp duty exemptions and uh, back to how things were. So um, is it just politics, Chris? Well, I think in this situation it is, you know, the, the Libs were the ones pushing for the land tax and the Labor pretty much straight away. They, their argument was a bit silly, I thought. Um, they were saying we don't want to sign up our first-home buyers for a life tax, right, a tax they're going to continue to pay for the rest of their life. First-home buyers don't keep their first property forever. They keep it for maybe three to ten years, you know. Their first property is not their forever property. It's a stepping property, a stepping stone property. And so they're not signing up to a land tax forever. They're only signing up for it for three to 10 years, and then they're going to go and upgrade into something else. That's just the reality of what first-home buyers do. So the, the argument that, um, yeah, they don't want them to sign up to a life tax was a bit, uh, didn't really work in, in my view. But ultimately, I think this change is quite important because what we've seen is a lot of the people who, um, young couples, two professional couples, we do a lot in obviously New South Wales, typically they probably, um, if they were doing quite well financially on an income point of view, um, they would potentially try to get him into the, you know, a smaller house. So they might go for a, a two-bed house in the inner west or, um, you know, or maybe they look down towards the Shire and they're probably looking at 1.5 to 2 range, which are big numbers, right? This is, um, but this is what absolutely were happening pre-2020, 2020, 2021. But in 2022, 2023, their borrowing capacities and their appetite to stretch um, have also reduced dramatically, right? Because interest rates are higher. First-time buyers are always naturally a little bit nervous entering the market, which is fair enough. It's it's very daunting. Um, and they don't really want to stretch into that 1.5 to 2, A, because they can't find anything. There's very little stock. And B, they're just like, I don't, I don't rather than get a really poor asset in that range, um, I might as well just 
get something in that 1 to 1.5 range. So we're seeing that buy actually reduce their budgets and buy well within their means. So we're creating a lot of competition in that 1 to 1.5 range. And I think that's something similar what's happening. If someone was looking in that 1 million to sort of, you know, 1.1 range, they're tempted to actually reduce their budget down to eight to 900 um, where they pay very little amount of stamp duty. And also they want to be conservative under higher rates. And so um, we've already seen um, a lot of clients that were trying to take advantage of that under $1.5 million um, stamp, stamp duty exemption that was up to, you know, the 1st of July. But a lot of those people who didn't buy um, are still in the market. They've just have to now pay stamp duty. And so, they that that policy in itself created demand that stuck around it's sticky demand so a lot of people who you know they got tempted because they knew they didn't have to pay stamp duty they've got their savings together they got pre-approved now they're just readjusting their budgets to what they can afford because they've got to pay stamp duty um and so i think it was a very infl uh, demand boosting um policy and i think there's going to be a lot of competition in that eight to nine hundred million range for you know often two bed apartments that are um, in Sydney and older blocks around the city, it's um, yeah, there's going to be a lot of buyers out there, and uh, you know, the best time to sell that one point one to one point five million dollar property in Sydney was probably pre thirty June. We saw a lot of properties go way over what they were worth because the first time buyers in their mind thought, if I don't buy now, I'm not going to be able to buy it post one July. Uh, and properties that should have sold at one three one four were selling at one five on the nose, which was the limit. So. Um, yeah, it's a, if you are in New South Wales and you haven't bought a property before, suss it out. The real benefits in the eight to nine hundred range. Once you start getting nine fifty or nine seventy five, the stamp duty savings, you know, quite minimal, um, and hence why I think a lot more demand will be in that eight to nine hundred range. Or people buying for eight hundred thousand dollars on the nose and then paying ten thousand for a set of blinds or something. Uh, yeah, so distortions in the market for sure. I think um, yes, it's it's always confusing to me. Australian politics. When I was growing up in the UK, it was really simple. You had the Conservative Party for business and you had the Labour Party for the trade unions and there was no sort of middle ground. But in, in Australia, it seems like often um, one side of politics will just do the exact opposite, uh, almost just because, you know, they're the opposition. And uh, we saw the same thing with carbon offsets. It was hard to work out who was the, uh, the, the centre-left and who was the centre-right. There was so much crossover there. And at the moment, we've got a Labour federal government running the highest population growth in Australia's history. So not good for Labour, you would think, as in the Labour force. But um, yes, it's just the way these things seem to go. Now, you mentioned there, Christopher, first home buyers. Um, and I know we've talked on a previous episode about lending still being way tighter than it was maybe a decade ago or particularly uh, pre-GFC. Um, so it's tough for first home buyers who don't necessarily have high incomes if they can only borrow, you know, four or four and a half times their income. Uh, now, I did see just a little bit of movements on the margin anyway this week. So um, one of the non-banks dropping its serviceability buffer down from 3% to 2%. Um, so these are uh, not deposit-taking institutions that are uh, regulated by APRA. These are sort of non-bank lenders. And also, um, in some cases, uh, potentially not even using buffers if you're looking at a five-year fixed-rate mortgage. So do you think we're we going to see some shift in that direction from non-bank lenders? And I I guess um, for the sort of regulated banks, um, well, probably nothing's going to change until we're pretty sure that interest rates have actually peaked or very close to peaking. 
Yeah, so went back in the um, boom time, um, you know, there was a lot of non-banks were offering very good rates because um, funding was really, and I'm saying the recent boom, 2020, 2021, offering amazing rates, just as good as the majors, to be honest, which is usually rare, um, sometimes even cheaper. It was crazy how cheap they mm -hmm. were. And their lending conditions were more relaxed in terms of they would lend more. But, you know, going back in time, there's been times when the, that seesaw was flipped and it's become really hard for non-banks to get finance. And we also saw an explosion in new digital lenders that got um, cheap finance as well, right? Um, but we know that when times get tough, they get smashed. And in recent times, what happens is, is that the rates on them jump up a lot and you become mortgage prisoners in a bank that you can't refinance out of. Um, and there's a lot of uh, brokers and a lot of clients, especially in the investor space, that have leveraged beyond what they could get at the majors. And they've gone into the non-banks with the idea that they'll refinance out within six to 12 months and then the market flipped. And these clients are on rates that could be one or 2% above where the majors are. So they could be on six and a half, seven and a half percent. Those banks aren't budging. They're not giving better rates to their customers and the customers can't refinance out of them because they're a, because of equity prices have gone down, but also B, because their borrowing capacities have fallen. So all the way through the boom, we did under 1% of our loans with non-banks. We're very hesitant to, to use them. However, in recent times, we've also had to give clients other options. And non-banks, you know, especially when you look at five-year fixed, um, you know, places like First Mount, Resumac and all this stuff, um, then your borrowing capacity jumps up a lot um, potentially if it's the right fit for you. And um, I do think there's going to be a not so much the rate-driven um, benefit but more borrowing capacity and that client's going, I'm going to go to this non-bank. Yes, I'm taking on that risk that rates could be higher but that allows me to get a better asset and I'm hopeful that my income's going to go up a lot. I'm going to be able to refinance out back to the majors and while that's a a risk we need to think through. Um, I do think there's going to be a bit of a, a benefit going to non-banks, especially when they do things like you say, Pete, reduce serviceability buffers. I don't know if that makes a huge difference, that 1%. Non-banks usually a bit higher on rate. So once you add in the higher rate, plus the, it might not be too much of an extra borrowing capacity than the majors. But I do think this serviceability is a real issue because that we have absolutely got clients who, when we do the numbers, what they can borrow based on their income basically is not enough to buy anything quality and they're just saying i'm just gonna i'm gonna keep do nothing basically just keep saving and so it's forcing people out of the market because it's just not enough capacity to to do what they need to do and they're just going to focus on improving their income and just building their savings and other investing i was wondering uh because you said last week that um, today's uh headwinds could become tomorrow's tailwinds when things change but um, yes, you've explained well there why at the moment, anyway, these are only small moves and it could be some way off. Reserve Bank of Australia kept interest rates on hold this month, as you'd have seen in the media this week. It was all over the place, actually. Yeah. Um, I think that's what they would call a hawkish hold. So uh, still potentially interest rates could go higher, but um, pausing to take stock of the situation, potential change of governor coming up as well i think what people are you know they're hopeful that we're nearer the peak for interest rates um housing finance or lending seems to have found a base and is rebounding a bit including for new investors and of course we're just not building very much it's particularly in the inner cities now uh, which is itself underpinning the market so um yeah so but it does feel like uh, there's going to be uh, that three percent buffer is apparently going to stay in place until interest rates have definitely peaked or definitively peaked for the cycle. So we'll have to uh, wait 
probably another six months or maybe longer before there's any change there. So, uh, Chris, the third and final story of the week, um, exodus of real estate agents. I had to go do a bit of digging to find out how many real estate agents uh, there are in Australia. Bit of a movable feast because it's such a cyclical industry. Uh, 2021, just over 133,000 Aussies through a network of 46,000 real estate businesses. But I think that kind of underplays the importance of the industry in a way, because yes, there are 133,000 agents, but what about um, you know things like property management and rental collection? Uh, then you've got um, all of the stuff that goes on in terms of renovations and furnishings and construction. I mean, if you look at it in that sense, it's 25% of the whole economy, you know? So uh, yes, you know, real estate agents are just one part of, uh, you know, one cog in the wheel. Anyway, the news story was, um, uh, news have done a couple of pieces on this recently. Um, Tom uh, Panos, uh, top auctioneer and agent in Sydney, he said that the exodus of real estate agents has begun. So a lot of agents got into the market in the boom 2020, 2021, 22 you know, bought themselves a nice tailored suit, uh, upgraded uh, or leased a, a flash car, but now they're starting to leave the industry again. So I think um, the barriers to entry, Chris, in real estate are relatively low. It's quite easy to become a fully licensed agent um, and therefore the numbers can be pretty up and down through the cycle. And I, I guess what this is reflecting is that um, sales volumes went really high for a period uh, when interest rates fell to zero, but now they've fallen back to average in the capital cities. And in fact, in regional Australia, now below the five-year average. And um, actually stock listed for sale, uh, CoreLogic said, is now 26.4% lower than the five-year average in the capital city. So it looks like uh, the commissions for real estate agents are going to drop away now. Yeah, I think you made a really good point around the cog in the wheel because you know mortgage brokers are part of that. Anyone who benefits from transactions, right? So transactions, you know, mortgage brokers, part of that, the person styling the property, uh, the person who tidies the property up, the plumber, the electrician, for sale, the agent, the conveyancer, the building and pest guy, the, you know, there's so many people who um, are part of that transaction. And if transactions really fall down and there's a lot less work for a lot of people, in particular, people who have entered the industry in recent times, which already do it tough. I think the broking industry is going through this at the moment. We saw broker numbers, don't quote me on this, probably from 16 to 19,000, so 20% increase in brokers. Um, and, you know, whether they stick around, there's already a huge um, cohort of that 16,000 that are basically legacy and part-time brokers or not brokers at all, just sitting on trail books, et cetera. So I think there's the 80-20 rule, but I, I would say in the real estate game, it's probably 90-10. It's really hard industry to crack. They've got these, the king and the queens of the suburbs, right? The ones that have been in that area for 15, 20 years um, own the suburb. You know, everyone knows that they're the key agent. They sell 80, 90% of the properties, or maybe it's two agents that sell 80, 90% of the properties in the suburb. And then you have a couple of brands that pick up the odd sale, usually the poorer properties, the the ones that the, um, you know, maybe they, the, the seller goes to them because they're hungry and they're ready and they, they do a really good pitch and maybe they're a bit cheaper. And um, so I think it's a real tough game. And at times like now, absolutely. I think even the top agents would say it's tough getting finding new properties to sell um, and also selling them. You know, they're, they're actually finding a lot of vendors are pulling properties. They get the listing, they 
get they show people prop through the property that agents always potentially over promise for the listing as well you know the seller usually goes with the per the agent who tells them the biggest price um not the agent who's more real with them um and so if the uh, agent can't get the price they overpromised, which is the reality in this market, um, especially if it's not a great property, um, the, the vendor says, I'm just going to sit and hold. If you can't get me 1.5 million, I'm just going to stay here. Um, so agent does all this work for no money. And so it's a tough time. But, you know, you've got to remember, though, that at times when it's booming, though, you know, there's listings selling in hours and, and you know, there's potentially very limited work sometimes. It's just matching two people together. So, um yeah, it's just the natural cycles for lots of industry. And brokers are going through this as well. We're probably 15, 20% down. In particular, we're um, more affected than other brokers because we do a lot of the home buyers above a million dollars. Um, and that's absolutely the market that's seized up. Um, the interesting thing here, Pete, I do think there's a lot of investors who are considering bailing. Um, and one, um, because they can, they can still sell their investments for fair prices because there's a lock of, lack of stock. So they're not having to do fire sale um, prices. Two, they're just under enormous pressure with interest rates. If you think you're paying six and a half or, you know, percent on your uh, on your mortgage and maybe your loan's moving from interest only to principal and interest or even it's just interest only and you're getting a 3% yield, um, you're losing, you know, three and a half, four percent And if you've got, you know, a million dollar property, it's going to be thirty or $40,000 a year, you could be down. Um, and, um, you know, clients who have got multiple yeah, millions of dollars in property um it's a real big cash flow burn um and they can't refinance the etc and so we're absolutely seeing lots of clients come to us with two three four five properties um it's not a case of should i buy more it should i how many should i sell and um i think that's going to really most of those properties i think they're going to go to other home buyers we could already see that um there's more of a home buyer in the market than investors i would say um and uh, that's going to cause rental stress. But I think it's good if you're an agent in an area where there's lots of investors. So if you think high-density apartments, um, you think uh, where a lot of uh, what we call property spruikers go to low, cheaper areas and they, where it's easier to buy, um, I think you're going to find with a lot of uh, cohort of investors, I think you're going to find there. So, yeah, I think some agents are going to find it really tough. Home buyer markets in capital cities where lack of listings and you know, no one, everyone's sitting on the head, but in where investor markets, I think, you know, those agents are probably going to do all right over the next six to 12 months because they're, they're probably going to be targeting these investors that have basically can't hold on. Certainly a bit less competition around when you're actually trying to buy property. I think the challenge is that sometimes if you get a quality property, good family home, good location, suddenly there's loads of interest. But uh, I think for a lot of um, investor stock, there probably isn't so much competition around. I saw SQM Research runs a, a new uh, distressed listings uh, data series and distressed listings went pretty high in 2021. A lot of people didn't have uh, work for a period of time. Now we've got low unemployment, got very low uh, vacancy rates and the number of distressed sales has come down. So I think, um, yes, a lot of investors might be offloading properties, but not in a distressed or fire sale way at the moment anyway. Um, it just seems to be people just reallocating their cash flows or reprioritizing a bit. But I think this is how the economic cycle works. I um, always refer back to a friend of mine, James Whelan, says uh, this is how the, the whole economy really works. The bedrock of the economy is young people hooking up, buying a new home, furnishing it, white goods, um, spending, you know, that is really what he calls the theory of stuff. The economy runs on people buying, building new homes, furnishing them, 
and then spending once they've hooked up as a couple on two incomes. And at the moment, um, I think we're starting to see the reverse of that. So uh, we do know that um, residential construction in particular has a very strong multiplier effect for every dollar that's spent in that sector. It kind of multiplies out to $3 across the wider economy. But we're going to start to see that going into reverse over the next year or two. And I suppose in the end, that's how the monetary policy works, tighter interest rates, tighter lending. Um, It's just starting to cool off all of the excesses that we saw during that little boom period. Yeah, you even make it exactly back to that cog in the wheel, right? What you've actually purchased, uh, yeah, it's usually things you want to fix up to the property, you want to replace some blinds, you want to paint it, you want to get some floor in, uh, and then you want to furnish it, and then you get your new TV and you get your furniture. So those, those transactions, you're right, they just keep going on and on, and um, you know, new money's basically replacing old money there in, into a suburb, and then you know, cafes open up because more people are moving there, and places gentrify, etc. So. I think also in the construction sector, you know, massive reduction in um, approvals, but approvals are basically money for the, and the government's big part of this as well. Stamp duty um, is a huge thing to um, not forget, right, and how much money that flows into other projects, et cetera. So, um, yeah, this is one of the reasons why the land tax move is so enticing for the the state governments is because if you create more transactions, then you create a lot more economic activity. And that's really what they're trying to do with that land tax, I believe, is more transactions create more activity, more economic benefit. Um, yeah, they may not make as much money on stamp duty, but there's a lot of other benefits as the economy. Um, and uh, the new build construction world, the government's make so much money on that from taxes in lots of different ways, um, lots of reports out on how much money the government makes on every new property. It's, it's, it's enormous. So... Um, yeah, it's been a big week, Pete. What's uh, what should we chat about next week? Well, yeah, get rid of the stamp duty and people can more easily move to where they need to work. It's good for the mobility of the labour force and uh, I guess the land tax would be a much more consistent revenue stream through the cycle instead of these yeah. enormous up and down lumps that we get with stamp duty. Uh, so, yeah, firstly, well, let's summarise this week. So tree changes returning to the cities, at least for some of the week. First home buyer assistance in New South Wales uh, comes into effect from 1 July. Um, so if you're buying a property with a contract dated 1 July or later, um, make sure you check out what you may or may not qualify for. If you're not sure, just um, drop us a line, get in contact. Um, we can point you in the right direction. Um, and thirdly, an exodus of real estate agents from the market. It's a notoriously fickle and cyclical industry, um, but some of the Johnny-come-latelys are now uh, going back to work in retail, hospitality, um, personal training, wherever they uh, previously may have been working, I guess. So, um, yeah. Uh, so, look, next week, Chris, well, there's, there's always loads to talk about. Uh, I think it would be good to do a bit of a deep dive yeah. on um, some of the the stock on the market. What is selling? What's being listed? What isn't selling? Who's selling it? I think it would be good to get into some of the the nitty gritty and the detail on that because a lot of these sort of macro figures you see reported, they don't tell the full story and it'd be good to get some uh, case studies and insights there. I think you're right. I think CoreLogic have just released their monthly um, update. I think their chart pack will probably come out in the next week or so. Um, We can also look at SQM. They've got good data around what's been sitting on the market for a while Um, because I think this RBA indecision there where it's do we go up, do we go down, uh, do we go? Do we hold? Do we go up? I mean, that's probably not going down yet, but you know, I don't think it'll be long before those conversations start to pop up. To be honest, um, but I mean, that just uncertainty 
is very heavily linked to new listings. Um, you know, as soon as the RBA flipped their sort of story, I think it was April or May, I can't remember exactly what it was, I think it was May, um, then I think that was a real, well, I'm not going to sell now. And I think agents would have just went, oh, no. Um, I actually thought markets were going to start to stabilise a little bit and I could actually encourage invest, uh, sellers into the market. But our sellers are like, I just want to see what happens with the RBA. I just want to see how high rates go before I make any of these big moves. And I think we're going to see this spring is going to be pretty disastrous, um, I would say, in terms of new listings. But we'll have a good chat about that next week on uh, Two Cents. Yeah, a bit can change between now and then, so we'll see. So uh, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, we always encourage you to send us your property questions via the link in the show notes or even if you just want to connect or say good day. Um, you can catch me on my daily blog, Pete Wardgen Blogspot, or at Pete Wardgen on Twitter. You can subscribe for the Rask Podcasts on uh, your favourite podcast player, and you can catch us on YouTube. And Chris, if people want to have a chat with you guys over at Blusk, uh, where can they get in contact? In the show notes, click the link. There's a bit of a type form there and um, absolutely we'll get in um, touch with you straight away and absolutely sign up to Pete's blog, the best property blog in the country. Um, religiously read that every day. So um, thanks for putting that out, Pete. And um, yeah, I hope you have a good week and uh, happy Sunday to all our listeners. Cheers, Chris, and let's go Poms. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.